Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we come your way every Saturday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time. We stream live at richarddugan.com and newspress.com. We're rebroadcast on A2Zen.fm at 3 p.m. Pacific Time Sundays, and we archive the programs at richarddugan.com, the radio show's page. It's a pleasure to have you with us every Saturday as we uh, take a look at those new paradigms for a new world, looking for those new ways of living, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. It's really a pleasure to come your way every week to bring you these interviews with uh, the various guests that we have. And we'd like to hear from you. If you would uh, like to drop us uh, an email, I was going to say drop us a line. Not sure how you're going to do that, be that as it may. Uh, you can do that. Richard at richarddugan.com is uh, the email address. And uh, we encourage you to uh, use that email address and uh, and uh, get in touch with us. We'd love to uh, love to uh, hear from you. I think it's uh, it's going to be uh, interesting to see what we have on the uh, on the menu for today. And menu is the right word for today because we are going to be talking with one of the authors of the Mystic Cookbook. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun today because we all like to talk about food, even more so how to eat it. But this is going to be about the secret alchemy of uh, food. And this is a book that's co-authored by Meadow Lynn and uh, Denise Lynn also. And we want to welcome you to the program, Meadow. Hi. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a joy to be here. Now, I guess we'll start right at the beginning. I mean, there are... You can go into any bookstore or go online. I like using the metaphor of the bookstore because it's more descriptive from my perspective. And you can see shelf after shelf after shelf of cookbooks. What sets this cookbook apart from all the others? Well, you know, this cookbook is unlike any other cookbook. And I'm not just saying that flippantly. It really is, and this is why. It is really what we've been calling, it's more of a cookbook for your life, or a cookbook for life, I guess, than it is a recipe book. It does contain a number of original recipes, all um, created and tested by me. So in my unbiased opinion, they're all fantastically delicious. But more than that, the book offers a gateway for opening your consciousness and stepping further into your power and deepening your spiritual connection and creating more joy in your life simply by the way that you approach your meals, by the way that you eat them, the way that you choose your food, and the relationships that you have with your food. Because, let's face it, we all have to eat. So why not make it something that's pleasurable and joyful and something that can enhance our life and open us up to even greater possibilities? Well, now, first of all, I, I, I want to compliment you on, um, let, me, let me put it another way. I'm looking at your picture, and you don't weigh three to 400 pounds. <laughs> Not yet. No. <laughs> well, let's hope it doesn't get to that. Um, and that's very interesting. When I see uh, chefs who, um, I mean, I, I have to say that I do look at Julia Child, and she seemed to, obviously, she, she loved to eat. But she also loved to cook, and she cooked incredibly delicious things, so I've been told. Um, 
but uh, you you come from a little different background. You don't actually come from a cooking background because your mother, Denise, who is a co-author of the book, is uh, a world-renowned healer and teacher as well. Uh, how much of an influence did she have on your your desire to cook? Well, as far as co- I've been passionate about food and cooking since I can remember. My earliest childhood memory or one of them, is I wanted to make something, and I was probably only three years old, and I remember going into the dining room and grabbing a chair and dragging it into the kitchen, and I was barely as tall as as the seat of the chair, and I remember climbing up on that chair and then stretching my arms up high to reach into the cupboard that I can barely reach and pull out a number of jars and bags of different ingredients and making my first dish, and I think I was about three years old. So food has something, it's been something I've been passionate about my entire life. You can even tell as soon as I start talking about it, my voice gets higher and I start talking faster because it's <laughs> something that, that I am so excited about. And it's kind of the family joke that my life is chronicled in the meals that I've eaten. So it is something that has always been a part of me. And then when I went to uh, graduate school, I actually studied in Paris and I got a master's degree from Columbia University in French cultural studies, and my focus, my thesis, was on the history and sociology of eating in France. So I've looked at it from both that of a cook. I have been cooking professionally, catering. I'm self-taught, but I've been catering my mom's retreats for 18 years. And then in uh, school, in graduate school, I studied kind of the academic side of it. And now it's been such a joy to blend that with my mom's 40-year background in spirituality and mind, body, spirit, and take what I've learned about the physical act of cooking and eating (laughs) and blend that with her background and spirituality. And we've seen from the experiences of the people who've come to our ranch that they have dramatic changes in their life, not just from the deep inner work that they're doing in the class with her, but also because we make mealtime such a celebration. I infuse the food with love when I make it because I love what I'm doing. And so that goes into the food. But also we set the music, we set the table, we, we even create like uh, table settings. My mom likes to talk about them as being like mini altars. So we, we mm. set all of that to go with the meal, whatever the theme is. If it's Mexican, maybe we have mariachi music and piñatas and everything's very colorful. Or maybe we're having a day where we need a little more solitude or reflection. And so maybe it's a Zen meal and it's all very precise and clean lines. Or maybe everybody needs to tap into that childhood joy. So we'll have we'll have just a fun kind of exuberant lunch where maybe we have... You know, grilled cheese and tomato soup takes us back to our childhood. Maybe we listen to, you know, zippity-doo-dah, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. it is that you can use food to to change your state, not just to appease hunger, but to uplift your spiritual and mental states as well. The Mystic Cookbook is the title of the book, and of course it does actually contain recipes, but if did I hear you correctly, it is not... I, it's not actually a recipe book, even though it has it in it. It's not designed like the cookbooks that my mother would have up in the cupboard when she wanted to make a an angel food cake. She'd pull it down because you're, as you just stated, what you're incorporating. And that's kind of where I want to go, because one of the things that I'm kind of gathering from what you've already shared with us 
is that there is not only a chemistry to us as human beings, there's a chemistry to the food that we eat. And when you combined, I'm going to use the term chemicals, when you or elements maybe is a better word, when you combined the elements in a certain way or certain elements in a certain way, and then we ingest those elements, it can affect us in different ways. Maybe even each time that we have that same set of elements, it can affect us in different ways because we've had new experiences. Is that is that a fair way of putting that? That's a great way of putting it, and I think you're, you're getting into that idea of the alchemy, the secret alchemy of food. And we can look at that alchemy at first from a very kind of physical level. You know, alchemy was those kind of ancient, perhaps mad men slash scientists who are trying to take base metals and turn them into gold. And on a very physical level in the kitchen, we do that. We take a number of different ingredients and blend them together to make a dish, a complete meal. And that meal, in many ways, is more than the sum of its parts. And so in that way, there is alchemy always happening in the kitchen. That you take, you know, a tomato, an eggplant, some pepper, zucchini, and you blend that together, and you have a ratatouille, is a vegetable dish stew from the south of France, which is much more than each of the one ingredients would be on its own. But then, on a deeper level, I like to use the analogy of a snowball. You know, when here in the coast of California, we don't get a lot of snow, <laughs> but but you know when you have a really wet snow and you're making a snowman and how it just keeps on picking up more and more snow and eventually you get that really big ball? Mm-hmm. It's like that with energy, too. Food is made up of energy. And so it's constantly picking up our love, our desire, our anger even, and we take that in when we eat. So, you know, sometimes you can have a dish that's prepared the exact same way with the exact same ingredients, and one day it tastes completely different than the next day. That could be the difference of the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings you were having that when you were cooking that actually do indeed infuse that food. And they're even, they've been doing some research at a university in Stuttgart, Germany, on water, similar to Dr. Emoto's studies with water, where they took identical samples of water and froze them, but each sample of water had been touched by a different person. And when they looked at the water crystals, each one was changed by who had touched it. And they did it over and over again. And each frozen water crystal for each individual person looked the same over and over again, but they did not look like the other ones, even though the water sample was the same in all cases. So that, that is another way that food is not just that, you know, that bright red apple on the counter. It is infused with the energy of the place where it has come from, the people who've come in contact with it. And then even more so, each food, and I think you were getting at that, Richard, is also infused with our own associations and beliefs and past experiences. If, for instance, you had a really bad experience at one time with, say, I don't know, a piece of fish as a child maybe, and it didn't sit well with you, it might be years until you could eat fish again, or you always, without even knowing it, have 
some sort of reaction to the fish, or maybe something traumatic happened. I had a friend growing up who stopped eating completely, and her parents couldn't figure it out, and they, of course, were very worried. And it wasn't until she'd gone through a lot of therapy that they realized that the family dog had choked on some food and had died. And so as a very young, impressionable child, she had equated eating with dire consequences, so she just stopped. So we all approach our food with our back history. And so every time we're eating, that is at play as well. So when we can pinpoint what those beliefs, those associations, those memories are, and change them or make new memories, new beliefs, new associations with food that is delicious and good for us, we can make dramatic changes and and we'll have that many more delicious, wonderful things to eat. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, the, the one thing that I find uh, uh, interesting about all of this is the conversations I've heard over the difference between and I don't know how this plays in just yet, but I have a feeling it does, cooking and baking. And, of course, the basic analogy is that uh, baking is a science and cooking is an art because, you know, you have to do things just right in baking in order for the baked good to turn out the way you want it, whereas in cooking... You can be as creative as you want to be, mix flavors that no one has ever thought of mixing before and come up with a whole new taste sensation. How about those two aspects of the overall concept of uh, cooking, shall we say, and using that in a very general sense? Um, how, do we, how do we bring those two together in this conversation? You know, that's interesting. I had never really heard it broken down quite so black and white, and I... I do see that, but also I think there is still there is art still in baking and there is still science in cooking. But but I would consider myself more of a savory chef than a um, pastry chef for that very reason that mm-hmm. baking tends to be very scientific. You have to <laughs> you have to follow rules. <laughs> oh, you're the rebel, are you? <laughs> well, I am not actually at all. I am such a rule follower in every aspect of my life, except maybe for cooking. <laughs> but um, but I do see, you know, it is in, it's a very interesting question, but I do see in so many ways that cooking, it is an art form. And I, it's such a joy to see this, this I don't want to say resurgence, because I don't know if it actually is happening again, or the surgeons, but I'm not sure if that's a word, of <laughs> people's interest in food and cooking. I mean, the Food Network, you know, a few yeah. years ago, no one talked about food in the way that they do now. And I was an elementary school teacher for a number of years, and the, the kids would come into class not necessarily talking about the, fa- you know, the latest pop star, but they came in talking about their favorite chefs and their favorite episode they'd seen the night before on the Food Network. And it's so, such a joy to see food and the preparation of it really being lauded for its artistic, creative side. Because really it is, and the more that we can eat as an art form in a way, and I don't know, that doesn't exactly make sense. I'll <laughs> give a better example. I guess when we notice the the beauty in the food that nature provides for us as well, that nature has already made our food 
into art. For instance, you know, cauliflower, it's kind of one of those so-so vegetables, in my opinion. Like, it's good, but I'm not going to go out of my way necessarily to seek it out. But then if you spend a little bit of time, even just 30 seconds, admiring it, it is so beautiful. And the more time you, you absorb that beauty, see what nature has already provided for us, and you take that beauty in, you know, the more beauty you eat, the more you will continue to eat. The more beauty you see, the more beauty there will be in your life. And it makes a difference. I enjoy cauliflower so much more than I ever used to after I took the time to really see it. And so often I don't think we do see our food. Mm. Well, um, the part of the reason is because it's not on the plate long enough. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and, and quite honestly, and I can speak from firsthand experience, I literally sometimes have to slow myself down you know, and and I can only assume that this goes back to my childhood. I mean, I had uh, I had uh, a brother and four sisters, and I can only assume that uh, my psycho- psychological makeup was that I better eat all of this and eat it fast, or someone else is going to eat it for me. And that's kind of stayed with me. And it's like, well, now you don't have to do that. There aren't seven other people vying for your food. You know, <laughs> you know, it wasn't and it, not that it was a free for all, mind you, but I mean, that's kind of the mindset that big families might get into. And then they carry that over into adulthood. And and then, you know, um, either they overeat to to excess and then they start putting on the weight or they just wolf it down. And I like I said, I've caught myself a couple of times and it's in a way that's kind of scary. It's like, really, am I really doing that? Yeah. <laughs> And that's very much, my mom grew up that way, too. She grew up in a family, three siblings, and her parents had a pretty tenuous relationship. And so not only was there not a lot of food, and they had to eat really fast to make sure they got enough and fight for the food among the siblings, but also she said that a lot of times her parents would start fighting at the dinner. So they wanted to get the food fast before the parents would start arguing or food would be thrown at one of the other parents. You know, it wasn't necessarily a, an idyllic family yeah. meal. Frenzied feast and, before the fight. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, a lot of people do grow up with that, and it, it does create lasting effects into adulthood that either make you eat faster or have an unhealthy relationship with food. And so as we were talking about food being elevated to an art, and being something that is more part of the every you know part of our vernacular that hopefully people will be able to to step beyond that if that was your background and you know my mom's been working on it sometimes you know my dad will joke he'll say didn't didn't you just eat breakfast and she'll say yeah but i i i was you know i was doing email or i was going too fast i didn't taste it so i have to eat again to have that feeling of, because something, you know, if you eat too fast, your brain doesn't process that you've eaten it, so your stomach doesn't feel as full. <laughs> and, and you were talking about weight before, enjoy a child, and, and, a, and from my experience of living in France, too, I've noticed that, you know, the French, you know, it's the French paradox, they, they eat pretty rich food, but the difference is that they eat slowly. They eat multiple courses, but they're very small, and they eat over a long period of time. And the difference that really seems to be lacking here in America is the idea that sharing meals, eating 
is about community. It's about conviviality. They did a study at the University of Pennsylvania in the psychology department where they, they, I don't know if they showed a piece of cake or a picture of chocolate cake to a group of French women, and they asked them to give a one-word description. Most of the French women said, celebration. Whereas the American women, when asked to give a one-word description of the chocolate cake, they said guilt. That here in this country, we have this idea, foods are good, they're bad. We don't necessarily see the communal part of it. And when you see food as something that you share with others, that you know, goes back to the Bible, breaking bread, that when you sit down and you slow down, you end up eating less. So that, that's a good thing. <laughs> and you also end up spending more time noticing your food, as you said. Not just noticing that you're eating it, but noticing this, the aromas, the textures, the way it sounds even, and the way it feels in your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, and advertisers even recognize that snap, crackle, and pop. Mm-hmm. Would Rice Krispies be nearly as good if they went, you know, poof, poof, or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know Vlasic Pickles. I think their slogan is, the best crunch you've ever tasted. Yeah. That, um, you know, what if potato chips had the texture of pudding? That the um, texture or the sound is also important. And when you do slow down and you eat in that, you know, they use the term now mindful eating, it does make you more aware of every aspect, which is wonderful because, one, you don't gain as much weight, but also you are enjoying more. And when you set that template, because we have to eat every day, that spreads out into all aspects of our life because food really is at the heart of everything. Indeed it is. And to that, I want to pursue this particular line. People eat out a lot. Mm-hmm. And they eat at a lot of different places, both sit-down dining as well as fast food. And I can speak from personal first-hand experience that, number one, many of the fast food places that I have eaten at and recently, there's... It's like, yes, you can smell it in the air, and maybe <laughs> maybe you can taste it on the first bite, but after a few bites, it's like, what is this? It's not bad enough that you're not going to eat it, but, um, you know, it's like there's no real flavor there. Now, in the sit-down dinner places that, that I've frequented, even here in Santa Barbara, I've come across some restaurants where the food really isn't that good. Uh, I don't know if it's because of where they've they where they've gotten the produce, or because of the way it's been prepared, but it really wasn't very good. And yet people are raving about this particular restaurant, and I often wonder if patrons ever say to the waiter waiter or waitress or to the manager, or even if they get a chance to to the chef. You know, this really wasn't that good. I, mean, I don't know what you did, but it just doesn't taste good. Whereas my wife is an excellent cook. I mean, she knows how to pound a chicken <laughs> uh, and and tenderize it to the point where when she cooks it in the way that she does, and she uses a technique with a lot of different foods where she will sear the food in a fry in a in a pan on the stove with oil first. Mm-hmm. then put it in the oven for 15, 20 minutes to cook. Mm-hmm. And 
one final point on this. Whenever I order ahi tuna, and when I order, t- order seared ahi tuna, it isn't the flavor so much that I enjoy as much as it is the texture. Mm-hmm. The flavor's good. And I remember the first time I had, I'm going, this isn't tuna, doesn't taste like tuna. <laughs> well, that's because you weren't getting real tuna or you were getting yeah. the chicken of the sea, as they, they call it. Uh, but it was the texture uh, and not just uh, the, the flavor that I really, really enjoy. And I've had some bad ahi tuna prepared. Mm-hmm. So, so what, to, to what effect does bad food have? And I don't mean necessarily the kind that gives you indigestion, but for my examples, on our, how shall I say, our psyche, our spiritual well-being, our soul? Well, first off, it sounds like you, your wife is a wonderful cook. Oh, absolutely and that, fabulous. Oh, it must be such a joy. And probably additionally, what you're tasting, too, is not just her culinary know-how and her skills, but also the love that she's putting into the food. She that loves to food cook. Is you're, you're tasting her, the fact that she loves to cook, but she loves you, too, and that is going into the food. So it's nurturing and nourishing. And they say in India, actually, that a mother, and probably a father by extension, that her food is the most nourishing for her children because it is filled with all of that motherly love. So that, you know, on such a soul level, your wife's food is filled with, with soul, actually, you know, that you don't always get from restaurants, especially what do they call them, fast casual or kind of, you know, a lot of restaurants, there isn't a lot of soul in the food. There are some that have a ton of soul, and sometimes it can be, it can seem inexplicable. I was talking to someone recently who said at their local market, there is a a number of different coffee vendors, but there's one guy who has a line all the way, you know, around the block, and Mm -hmm. she asked him once, what's the difference? You know, you sell coffee, he sells coffee. Why is your line so long? And the guy said, because I put love in my coffee. <laughs> and, you know, no, he's not advertising that. And it right. sounds a little bit cheesy, but there's there's got to be something to it. Yeah. Oh, because, yeah. Because, you know, because they can taste. And as you said, you know, your wife is very skilled, obviously. She knows, you know, she knows her way around the kitchen, but also there's that deeper level that's in that food as well. Yeah, it's, and, and I think that, um, I, I also find it rather interesting, the, the, um, the way that uh, the chef positions are occupied, it, it's, it's weird. Most chefs are men in restaurants, but most men don't cook at home. Mm-hmm. Now, those chefs might cook at home, but... Usually, if they're married or with uh, a partner, usually it's the woman that cooks at home. But there are very few female chefs. There are female chefs. I know there are. But there are, no, there are probably more men uh, than there are women. And I find that very interesting because of that, that other aspect. And, and I think that it probably would behoove I, – I, maybe I should have paid a little more attention uh, in home ec class. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy uh, an occasional, uh, and I do cook occasionally, and I, I probably barbecue more than more than that. But she still oversees that, and I and I don't have a problem with that because she's been <laughs> doing this a lot longer than I have, and and understands it better. So she's, I'd rather get her guidance than ruin a piece of meat or or whatever we're cooking on the on the grill. Um, I always think that the grill thing it's it's almost hearkening back to 
to caveman yes. days or something. <laughs> There's something about the fire in men mm-hmm. that, you know, women, as you said, your wife, and it's the same with me. I do all the cooking. I, I cook all the time. But usually if there's a man around, he's the one man in the barbecue. There's this, you know, it's this interesting thing. I think it harkens back to those days of rubbing sticks together and making mm-hmm. fire and mm-hmm. cooking the meat. And it's interesting to see how far we've progressed, but we still, you know, at, at our base, we still have those those traces of of our forefathers. Four, four yes, exactly. Exactly right. We're talking with um, with Madeline, and she is uh, the co-author with her mother, Denise, of The Mystic Cookbook. I like that title. That's very neat, especially considering we're talking about the secret alchemy of food, as we discussed early in the program. We're going to continue our program in just a moment. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story. Tell me your story. Welcome back to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, uh, bringing you uh, new paradigms for a new world. I tell you what, uh, Amedo, I am, <laughs> this program's making me hungry. And we're not even talking <laughs> about specific foods here. Uh, just in general, we're talking about, uh, you know, f- what we eat and how it affects us. How much truth is there? And and let me preface by, preface it by saying that many of the I'll call them wise sayings that uh, we learned as we were growing up, like sticks and stones uh, and you can't change another person uh, are lies (laughs) because sticks and stones will hurt your bones and so will words. Uh (laughs) And you can change other people, not necessarily in, in in an aggressive way. But in a passive way, when you change yourself, you change the people around you. They either stick with you and love the growth that you're going through or they want nothing to do with you and they go away. You've changed Mm -hmm. them. So how true is this uh, statement? You are what you eat. Goodness, I I, I think it's true, actually. But in ways perhaps people don't usually think about that it is not just those – and we – I was alluding to this earlier. It's not just the base minerals and vitamins and calories and fats and proteins, all the things that you get on a nutrition label that we're eating every time we eat. As I said, we're also eating our thoughts, our beliefs, our associations. And so when we eat, you are getting nutrition or the lack thereof, depending on what you're eating, Mm -hmm. but you're also getting other information. For instance, there is a uh, man named Mark David who's done a number, I'm getting (laughs) tongue-tied, but he's done some research on this very idea, and one of the things he writes about is ice cream. I mean, who doesn't love ice cream? Mm -hmm. And he says that when, for instance, you are eating vanilla ice cream, and it's your favorite flavor, and you're very happy to be eating vanilla ice cream, your body actually assimilates it and metabolizes it much better than if you're thinking, gosh, I wish I was having, you know, Java chip, or God, oh, I'm so guilty, I'm so stressed, I shouldn't be eating this, this is bad for me. 
And when you're having all those thoughts as you eat the ice cream, your body actually doesn't metabolize it as well. And, and, and you know, that's not free license to eat, you know, vats of vanilla ice cream. Mm, my favorite, my favorite, my favorite. <laughs> but But it goes to show that it is not simply what's written on that nutrition label. And you can also use this for health food as well, too. For instance, my mom uses the example of alfalfa sprouts. For years, she ate them because she thought they were healthy for her. Everyone tells you, know, oh, sprouts are good for you. And then one day, she really tasted them and thought, you know, I actually don't really care for these. <laughs> and so she stopped eating them. And the truth is, they probably weren't as healthy for her at as they would be for someone who really enjoyed them. Because if you're constantly eating them thinking, eek, these really don't taste good. Or I'm, I'm just, I'm eating this, I'm eating this because, because it's good for me, it's good for me, it's good for me. You're eating those thoughts as well. So you're not just getting the good nutrients, you're also getting the blech, the blech, that's terrible, <laughs> thoughts and feelings too. So as much as possible, I urge people to, you know, to say, love what you eat and eat what you love. And that means finding that balance of foods that you find tasty and foods that are nutritious for you, rather than eating things that you hate because you think they're good for you, or eating all these things that you love, but they really aren't good for you. And every time you eat them, you think, I shouldn't be eating this, I shouldn't be eating this, shouldn't be eating this because that's not healthy either. But in that way, I do think you are what you eat because you are those thoughts, you're the emotions, you're those beliefs, and the nutrition that comes along with it. Well, I know that as a, as a Reiki master, I was taught that it was always good to Reiki your food. Mm-hmm. And... In essence, it's the equivalent of praying before your meal. I mean, that, that's kind of how I viewed it because that's what mm-hmm. we did when I was a kid growing up. We'd say, the, say grace and away we'd go. And um, I thought, okay, but what if the food isn't that great? In other words, let's just say that the quality wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Is the Reiki and and now I'm because uh, I want to broaden this out. I don't want to just focus on the Reiki, but again for the example, is the Reiki going to fix the fact that it's not that good? It's not that high quality of uh, fruits and vegetables or whatever it is, or is it? In the context in which we're speaking, can we actually change or metamorphose? Or use out using the word alchemy here uh, to uh, transform the food into something that will actually be beneficial to our bodies. You know, I think on a number of levels, there are different things going on with either that are affecting the food, either with Reiki, saying grace, doing prayer, and there's obviously something to it because you said every family in America in the 1950s said grace before a meal, and throughout. Throughout history, throughout the world, different cultures, prayer and grace are very common. And as you said, Reiki, too. A lot of people who have studied Reiki do Reiki on their food. And actually, my mom uh, was responsible for bringing Hawaii Takato to um, introducing her to America in a lot of ways, back in the, Hawaii in the 70s. So um, I, I'm not a Reiki master myself, but I have, I'm familiar with it. 
But so I think on a couple of levels. One, as I mentioned before, is Dr. Um, Masaru Emoto from Japan and the water crystals when they've frozen the water. You know, the, his, uh, you're, you're familiar with the very much so. Right? Yes, uh huh. And the, the prayers and the love that goes into that water, and then they freeze it. Those water crystals will suddenly become more symmetrical, more, you know, quote-unquote beautiful than those that, you know, if they say mean words or hurtful things to the water, they end up with jagged water, jagged crystals in the frozen water samples. So, you know, science is showing that thoughts and prayers do change food. And then the other side of that, whether you're doing Reiki on your food or saying grace or prayer, it also, I think, it's that that moment of reflection, that recon- that recognition that you are going to eat, that a plants and animals have given their life for your meal, that somebody has spent time in the kitchen lovingly, hopefully, <laughs> cooking and preparing and pl- plating this meal for you. And it's also a time when you, and we talked in France about community, when you say grace with others, you're also recognizing that you are at a table with others, that you are sharing in that community as well. So uh, all of those aspects, I, I can't see that it doesn't affect the food, even if, as you said, it's not the highest quality food to begin with. You know, of course, it's, it's best to start out with the highest quality, mm-hmm. but you can't always. And so in the Mystic Cookbook, we do offer a number of suggestions and tips and techniques of ways, including prayer and grace, that you can use to to raise that vibration of your food. I had a dear friend who, um, uh, he lived with us for a few months uh, before his passing, and one of his, I'll call them quirks, was that he, um, and and he cooked for us quite often as well, uh, and um, uh, he would spend sometimes 15 to 20 minutes just preparing his plate We'd get in there and we'd spoon in the potatoes and the this and the that and the meat and the and the salad and put them all on our plate, you know, and not like we were throwing stuff around or anything, but you know, we'd get our plates loaded and right. and then we'd go sit down and then we'd watch him for the next fifteen or twenty <laughs> minutes, just meticulously preparing and positioning and cutting and so on and so forth. And we, we used to joke about that a little bit, you know, that we were done eating before he was done preparing his plate. Wow. <laughs> but I have to wonder if, because I know that especially in restaurants, presentation is extremely important. And so I have to wonder if, if even in our own uh, private uh, dinner tables uh, that, again, you know, presentation, taking the time to – you know, I, I don't know that there's any anything like feng shui for a plate and food, but, you know, what's wrong with taking a few extra minutes to to make it look presentable, even if it's just for you? You know, it does. It makes a difference. And actually, speaking of feng shui, in the Mystic Cookbook, we have a whole chapter on the feng shui of your kitchen and dining room. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as the presentation, you know, they have that expression, you eat with your eyes mm-hmm. and... It's true in so many ways. For instance, I like to use the example of raw oysters. The first time I had them, I was a kid. My mom and I were camping on the coast of Oregon, and we went to 
to a place where they were raising their oysters or harvesting them right there on the beach and chucking them and putting them in jars. So they were the freshest oysters you could possibly imagine. We went back to our campsite, and we ate them out of the jar with a plastic spoon. I thought they were so disgusting. And I'm not a very picky kid, but those did not appeal to me. And then years later, I was living in Paris, and my boyfriend at the time took me to a Parisian cafe where they have the the oysters and the other shellfish stalls outside, all in a beautiful bed of ice. And inside, we had a crisp white wine. There was probably candles lit. In my memory, there was an accordion player. I'm sure there wasn't really. but <laughs> <laughs> And then we got this beautiful platter with a bed of ice and these beautiful oysters on the half shell with a delicious mignonette sauce. And, of course, you know, I was with my boyfriend, and it was all so beautiful. And here I was in Paris. Those oysters tasted so good Mm. and to this day i will go way out of my way to get raw oysters on the half shell and even though they were equally fresh the difference of the experience of who i was with i mean not not who i was with because i was with my mom the first time that was great too but the the setting being in the beautiful cafe being in paris Mm. having having the wine and the music and having the beautiful presentation of the oysters on the platter I mean, it, there's no comparison. And even though the taste was pretty similar to raw oyster in both cases, that the presentation actually affects the way that we enjoy our food. And color, too. Color is another huge aspect of how we enjoy our meals. And it affects us in many different ways. And we go into much more detail and depth in the Mystic Cookbook about color. But just a quick little tidbit be, you know red is an appetite stimulant so if you notice when you have red food you want to eat a lot Go to mcdonald's target what colors do they use red <laughs> because they want you to buy a lot or eat a lot yeah yeah so that presentation makes a huge difference imagine if watermelon were gray you know it would just it wouldn't be the same hmm. <laughs> I, I hear you i hear you let me ask you uh, in regards to because you've alluded to it. Um, you've alluded to people that you're with. Mm-hmm. If you're with someone who does not care for, a, let's just say you go to a seafood restaurant. Uh-huh. Right there on the pier or there in the marina. And you're with someone who does not care for seafood. Now, <laughs> yes, they have all of these other other non-seafood items on the menu, which is great. Um, how, how do you – what's the energetic going on there and how do you um, – how do you work to balance that out a little bit? Because I'm certainly not going to force the non-fish eater to eat fish. That's the wrong thing to do. I already know right. that. <laughs> but by the same token, I really want – because you know, when you mentioned raw oysters on the half shell, mm-hmm. I've had them once, and I actually enjoyed them. But I haven't had – I and this was back – had to have been in my late 20s. I haven't had them since. Not because I don't like them, but because I've never really had the opportunity since. And so I'm thinking, well, do I need to go to the local fish restaurant and just order myself uh, a half dozen oysters <laughs> on the half shell uh, for one? 
<laughs> what well, about you know you live in Santa Barbara there are some wonderful fish restaurants Absolutely there are <laughs> but what about that in terms of those that dynamic uh, when you have two people who are out out to dinner and one of them really doesn't care for the main food that may be served at that restaurant that that maybe that restaurant's known for You know it's does make a difference. And as you said, I've been talking a lot about eating with others, a sense of community. And I know for myself, because food is so important to me, that sometimes it's challenging when I'm out to dinner with somebody, regardless of what type of restaurant or certain proclivities, but when they're just not that into food. And I understand that I am the far extreme. But but I like to take that time to, as I said, you know, recognize what I'm eating. And, and I don't have to talk about the meal during the entire meal because that also can get a little overplayed. But I do like to recognize what we're eating and explore it a little bit. And in that same way with you were saying, if you're at a fish restaurant and the other person's just not into it, it can be challenging if you have different expectations of how the meal will be, not just what you're eating, but how the conversation will go, what the dynamic will be. And in your question, I, gosh, I don't know what I would, I guess, you know, to each his own. I don't believe that there's any one food or any one diet that works for everybody. But, it, you know, it's a shame if you're not into seafood and you happen to be at a seafood restaurant and you, you know, go or a veget Or a vegetarian restaurant and you want a side of beef. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. You need to decide those things ahead of time. And at the same time, for example, um, my wife wants to cook uh, uh, fish, for example, uh, seared ahi. Uh, she wants to cook it for me. But she is not a fan. And I haven't let her do that yet just simply because it's like, well, I, I, I would like for us both to, you know, maybe enjoy the same thing. Although that's not to say that we order the same thing at the restaurant. So I don't know why I have such a problem with that. Right. <laughs> but it's like, okay, you're cooking one thing for you and one thing for me. Well, I, I don't, you know, I guess I've, that's something I've got to get over. But I do find that interesting that, you know, you have people that, that they'll go out and they'll dine and, and, uh, and uh, they're at a seafood restaurant or they're at uh, any other specialty type restaurant and they order a hamburger. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's, and uh, that and that brings up another subject: being adventurous, if you will, uh, trying new foods, and then the converse: not eating foods that don't like you, so to speak. Right. Well, you know, this is interesting. I learned recently that, well, back to France, actually, in France, it they have a national curriculum, and they also have free preschool for everybody and in this free preschool program they hire professional chefs to prepare the meals that are all free and they set a menu i think it weekly or monthly and they get together with i think it's kind of the equivalent of the pta and the chefs and probably the french government too because they have a huge bureaucracy and they get together and they set these menus for their crash for their preschool and part of the goal is diversity to introduce children so it's part of their education system which we are lacking here (laughs) Mm -hmm. is a culinary education to introduce children to food from a very very young age and a wide variety of foods and this is what i learned recently that's interesting a child has to try or an adult for that matter has to try something eight to fifteen times and And if they've had an unfavorable reaction to it the first time, after 8 to 15 times of trying it again, they will like it. So here we often have this tendency, and that's why so many people 
you know, we'll go to a, you know, a nice fish restaurant on the pier, as you said, and order a hamburger because it's comfortable, it's known. Because as children here, we're not encouraged to try new foods. You look at the children's menu in most restaurants, French fries, chicken fingers, peanut butter and jelly, mm. grilled cheese. Yeah. Pretty ubiquitous. Whereas in France, they're making beet purees, sautéed leeks for little three-year-olds. But if in a but in France, they, the child tries a beet puree one time. They said, "Yeah," they say, "Okay, you tried it. That's fine." But next week, you're going to try it again, and they try it again, eight to fifteen times, and then they will like it. And so, I, mm. it's you know, it's interesting that the earlier we can introduce, especially children, to a wide variety of foods, the more diverse our diet will be, which makes us healthier. And I think also the more that you can expand your horizons when it comes to food, the more you're expanding your horizons in all aspects of your life. Because food is that universally connects us to everybody and throughout time, as I said before. And it's something we have to do. It's really at the heart of our lives. Mm -hmm. So if you are open and adventurous and willing to try and doesn't mean you have to eat you know hundred year old eggs like they have in china or live <laughs> octopus that they have in korea but you know being willing to try beets and leeks that i do think that actually indeed opens up other arenas in your life it raises another point too um because we ship all different types of foods all around the world that are not indigenous to that area now, before we did that, we ate what we grew in the region in which we lived. And even from season to season, the varieties of foods changed. And so our diets were varied even on those, uh, f just those foods that we could grow from season to season in our specific region, seasonal foods. Whereas now we, we ship all different kinds of foods all over the place that are not indigenous. And, I, and quite honestly, the question's been raised as to whether that is a good idea. You know, I mean, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, I love what you just said about a diverse diet. It's good for us and as opposed to eating the same thing over and over and over again. But what about that in terms of eating what's right there in your own backyard, so to speak? And this we, we do write about in the Mystic Cookbook. And I think in one way, it's amazing. We live in this amazing time in history when we have the entire world available to us to try, to taste. And also at this time in history, we live in a time when the worst possible food is available to us as well, mm -hmm. for better or worse. You know, there's a lot of packaged and prepared foods. But... Um, but there is something to eating really locally and seasonally that we're bereft of in our culture at this time, that we don't have that connection to the seasons, to the passage of time, to the cycles of nature that we used to have, because we can have a banana from Central America every day for breakfast if we want, or we can have raspberries in January or oranges in August. You know, that it's amazing we have all this diversity, but also when we take that time to really eat locally, really eat seasonally, it connects us to to the land in a really deep way and also to those cycles of nature. And each season has its own 
energy. And we write more in detail about this in the Mystic Cookbook. But, you know, the summer is this time of kind of expansiveness. And you, we talk about, we even have a section in the Mystic Cookbook about creating a summer meal, eating summer, we call it, you know, where you have this expansive energy and you eat summer foods and you expand that, that energy into your life or autumn is the kind of the cornucopia, abundance, and you want to feel more abundance in your life, create a meal using fall foods and you're bringing that fall energy into your life as well. You know, it's in for winter, pulling inward, that time of reflection that unfortunately we don't have either now. Mm -hmm. You know, we're go, 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 where traditionally winter was that time when you got to kind of slow down and restore your inner coffers. Right. You, and you, then, you know, spring, new beginnings. So there, there's so much that you can do by eating seasonally that, um, that has great power. But also, you know, I, I love being able to have all these things that we wouldn't normally have also. So it's, it's kind of finding a balance. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to go somewhere that I'm sure you've uh, had to deal with is in conversation from time to time. This, this goes to the good food, bad food uh, aspects. And uh, let's talk a little bit about, and we can talk for as little or as long as you'd like, about um, genetically modified foods. Uh, what's wrong with the foods that, we are, that we're growing now that we have to mess around with the, the genetics uh, and, and try to make them bug-free and this and that and the other? I mean, I thought we were doing just fine without <laughs> this stuff. And there are other countries around the world that are saying, we want nothing to do with it get it out of here or, or don't bring it here because it's not allowed. And yet we in this country, it's like we, we're not being given the choice uh, because I was talking with a feed producer. We used to have chickens and I asked him if, um, if they used uh, genetically modified uh, grains in their, in their chicken feed. And he says, well, it's impossible not to get it anymore because they've been using it for over 25 years. And, and I thought, really? But it doesn't say that on the label. Well, they don't have to put it on the label. And I was, <laughs> you know, and of course, that's, of course, that was a big issue with uh, the, past, uh, the, the past election and that one uh, particular proposition. But be that as it may, your thoughts in terms of the energetics and so forth uh, on, on our souls, on our psyche, if you will, on our spiritual life. And the, the last chapter, actually, in the Mystic Cookbook is called you know, organic, local, GMO, oh my, I don't know the exact wording, but <laughs> and we do touch on, um, on these issues because they are really important issues, that being a knowledgeable shopper in the grocery store is so important. And what you were saying about corn, is it's so scary. I, I have an organic garden that I'm actually looking at right now through my window, mm. and I love spending my winter pouring over my seed catalogs, and I, I like buying heirloom seeds. I get a lot of them from a farm in the Ozark Mountains, and they're completely dedicated to heirloom organic seeds. And even they are saying in their isolated little valley in the Ozarks that it's really hard to keep GMOs from their heirloom seeds. And once once that's gone, it's gone forever. So it, it is pretty frightening. And on a really, you know, physical level, it's, it's, it's really scary to, you know, who knows what, what, what these modifications are doing to us internally, but also on a spiritual level, because what we're eating isn't what it is when you eat GMOs. So 
So who, you know, we're, we think we're connecting with the energy of the tomato, for instance, but it's got some other genes in it. So, it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's frightening. I mean, and, and some even argue, well, how do you know that this isn't supposed to be the natural evolution of our food supply? And I'm, I'm thinking, really? I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see evolution as something that is controlled. <laughs> it happens no. naturally. And, and I can see how GMOs make sense on a financial level. Yeah. You know, it, and how it was started. You know, okay, it makes sense. You know, engineer the insecticide into the corn, put in a gene that makes a tomato not spoil, make it so we can grow more crops around the world to feed more people. It makes sense. But also, it's not our job to manipulate nature. I mean, that's why Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, or you know, Jurassic Park. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's especially scary with GMOs. And I have to try to rein myself in because I could get going for a while sure, here. Sure, sure. But it's also um, the food allergies. Mm. There's been a huge increase in food allergies that started about 20 years ago, about the same time that GMOs hit the market. Mm -hmm. And it's because of allergy is our body's reaction to a protein in a specific food. And when they create or they genetically modify a food, typically what they're doing is they are adding or removing a protein in that food. So of course, if that protein has been modified or changed, there's going to be more allergic reactions because mm -hmm. that's what your body is reacting to. And actually, I don't even know why I have it here next to my desk, but I have a little statistic from 1997 to 2008, a three times increase in childhood peanut allergies. Mm. So between 1997 and 2008, three more times the children got peanut allergies than ever before. I remember conducting an interview in 1983, and it's amazing I actually remember the year. Uh, <laughs> it was early in my career, and I was interviewing a nutritional expert, and this was when uh, the product Equal was just coming out on the market and being put into everything, uh, known as aspartame. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking the woman point blank, is has this been thoroughly tested and it's perfectly safe? And of course, she responded yes. And of course, my wife at that time and I we started. And of course, they brought in this big box of of various products with the with the uh, aspartame in it. And so we took it home and started eating it. And um, uh, my wife started to get na nausea and and headaches. And I got mood swings. And so we, 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 the only conclusion we could come up with was it was this stuff. So we both got off it. I wanted to try it one more time to test it. And I got the same reaction. And then about 20, uh, 10 years later, I was doing an interview with a, a, um, uh, a gentleman uh, who owned a funeral home. He was a mortuary. Uh, um, uh, he was a uh, mortician. And I asked him about how things have changed over the last ye years in terms of his, his work and his industry and so forth. And he says, well, you want to know the real interesting fact? He says, over the last 10 years, I've been using less formaldehyde to embalm bodies. Oh, my God. And the statistic and, and it was it's been verified that aspartame turns to formaldehyde. So we those people and I do not. But those people who consume products with aspartame in it are embalming themselves as they live. 
Oh, my goodness. I, I was just astounded. So, yeah, and it's like, okay, go back to 1983. She said it was perfectly safe. There are no problems. And yet people would exhibit problems. They'd report them and they were sloughed off and say, oh, it's got to be something else. Why does it have – this is the only new thing that I introduced into my life. How can it be something else? Yeah, and so, scary. <laughs> yeah, and so when you start talking about any types of modifications to our food supply, then you start saying, okay, then it is time for us. Although just from what you said about heirloom seeds, uh, you know, it's time for us to grow our own gardens and, and, ma- and grow our own food. But then again, how can you be sure that the seeds that you're using are – you know, okay to use. That's that's the next uh, the next issue, and then then we start getting into that attitude of lack or that that um, that perspective that oh my gosh, then there isn't going to be enough food, and 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 we start hoarding and this and that and the other thing, and we don't want to go down that path either. You know, that's that's not healthy for us I, I, either way. And I'm not sure that raking GMO foods is is necessarily the answer either. <laughs> no, I think. I think there are times to be spiritual and there's times to fight, and it's it's knowing when to do which. But yeah. I think it's it's important that we make a stand that we want to know what's in our food and we want it to be safe. Before we wrap up the program, I have last few questions for you. Who is Meadow Lynn? Well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what do you want to know? Um, <laughs> However you choose to answer the question. Oh, goodness. Um, Meadow Lynn is me. <laughs> I, As you know, I am passionate about food and cooking and eating. I'm somebody who's also passionate about teaching. I was a, a French teacher, actually, for eight years. I taught high school and elementary school and Working with the young children was just such a joy to see that moment when that kind of light bulb went off and to see them grow and turn into wonderfully, beautifully talented children. Such a joy. And I'm, I'm a mom to a dog and some chickens and some cats. <laughs> and, and I love writing and I love sharing what I've gained over the years about food and eating. So I guess in, in part of a nutshell, that's me. And what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing? Goodness, it's there's so much. I I guess my biggest kind of takeaway or giveaway <laughs> would be just that idea that you don't have to struggle to grow and that your life can be what you want it to be and it can be joyful and happy and a great place to start is with how you eat. And uh, final question. Okay. How powerful are we? Goodness, and it depends on the context, I guess. But I think we are a lot more powerful than we think, and that we really, each person has the ability to change their own life and to make it even better. So I think we, we have a lot more power than we think we do. Madeline, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program, co-author of The Mystic Cookbook, The Secret Alchemy of Food. It's been, uh, it's been a great joy to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been such a joy. And the website that people can go to to find out more 
about uh, you and the book? TheMysticCookbook.com. Easy enough. The Mystic <laughs> Book Cook, uh, the Mystic Cookbook.com. Thank you again. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Until next week at the same time, love to all.